So let's talk about love, right? I remember fondly uh, one of my favorite TV shows. I hate to admit it. It's a little humbling to say, but one of my favorite TV shows growing up as a young teenager was The Love Boat. Still will be making another run. The Love Boat promises something for everyone. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and uh, I got to tell you, even though that was one of my favorite shows, and I am humbled to admit it, um, it was not the greatest example. It was not the best way to learn about true love. As you can imagine, there were lots of love encounters displayed on that show that were, in hindsight, probably not the best thing for me to be watching as a young teenager. Impressionable minds, you know? Uh, So, um, I want to talk with you this morning about a different kind of love, the godly kind of love, the kind of love that God himself initiates and demonstrates so that we can learn from his example and then be, be able to carry on what he initiated. And that's precisely what John is talking about in 1 John chapter 4, this letter from the Apostle John. Here's a deep question for you to start this message off. Let me get you thinking deeply. I love to think deeply uh, sometimes. (laughs) Right now is a good time to think deeply. Here's the question. Where does love come from? Okay, yeah, you guys are giving me all, all of you know the right answer already because you've heard this passage before. But if you just, you know, pretend for a moment that you don't know what 1 John 4 tells us about the source of love, imagine how people that aren't Sunday schooled would answer the question. Where does love come from? The heart, okay. Yeah, let's make this responsive. Give me some other ideas. What have you heard or thought? What do you think others might, might how, how might others answer that question? Where does love come from? A good feeling. Ooh, yeah. It's all about the feelings, right? Cupid. Yeah, that's a good one. A chemical reaction, I think I heard. Well, there is something to that, actually. I won't get too deep into the science here, but there's this little part of your brain called, called the hypothalamus, and uh, there's some different chemicals that are released uh, that that help us to experience the reality of love uh, sometimes. But what I want you to recognize with me is that, you know, people might say, well, okay, we learn to love. It must be biological. It must be, it must have something to do with evolution, right? Maybe somehow or another, we as a species have learned how to love one another in a unique way. Because let's face it, right, there is something unique about the way that human beings love each other. It's a little bit different, a little bit beyond, at least for most people, I think, the way that animals love each other. There's something unique and powerful about the capacity that human beings have for love. In fact, I dare say that it's central to life as we know it. It's central to our experience of relationships, meaningful relationships, family, friendship, 
Love is right at, the, right at the center, right at the very meaning of life as we know it. So where does it come from? How did we develop this capacity? Well, some people might say, yeah, it, it must be biological. It must be inherited. It must be genetic. You know, maybe we just, um, we get it from our parents. Okay, well, yeah, there's probably something genetic to it, but where did your parent? Well, they got it from their parents, and they got it from their parents. Well, just, you know, back up a few generations, and at, at some point, the question surfaces again. Where did it come from? How did it, how did it originate? How did love find its way into the human experience of life? Well, let me tell you. You can think long and hard about the answer to that question. And you can search scientific journals. You can talk to people on the street and gather their opinions. But the Word of God offers us a clear answer. Maybe you've never thought about it before. Maybe it's a question you've never pondered. But it's a, it's a deep question. It's a powerful question. And the Word of God, the Bible, offers us a clear answer. And it's right here in this text that we're going to study. Let me put it to you as simply as I can. This is what John says in verses 7 and 8 at the very beginning of our text. Verse 7, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. 1 John 4, 7. So really what John's saying, if I could put this before you as succinctly as possible, is that like life itself, love comes from God, for God is love. He carries on the, th uh, the thought and begins to explain it a little bit more in the very next verse expanding upon what he said in verse 7. John writes in verse 8, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Let me ask you to just say that with me a minute, to proclaim it and declare it, even if you're not sure that it's true. Say it with me. God is love. So both of these things, love comes from God and God is love are very short, simple statements that the Apostle John is making in verses 7 and 8. And yet they're profoundly deep realities. Short sentence, simple statement, but profoundly deep realities for us to think about. What John's saying is that love doesn't originate from natural selection or evolution or genetics. It wasn't as if you know, some man or woman many, many years ago um, came up with this idea, this had this you know, sort of brilliant moment of revelation where they invented the idea of love or the experience of love and then claimed it as their own great idea. No, love, John says, originates with God. Love originates with God. God is both its source and its definition. It's definition. That's what he means with the second statement. Love comes from God. God is its source. And God is love, which means God is the definition of love. The two realities are interchangeable. In other words, God didn't just create love for our benefit 
what John's telling us, what John's hinting at here is that according to the Bible, love is the defining characteristic of God's nature. It's the very essence of who he is and how he acts. He created us as an act or an expression of his love. In fact, I've heard it said, and I love the thought, that that the Trinity existed, of course, eternally together, and it was out of the overflow of the love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that the Godhead decided, let's create humanity in our image so that they can love each other, learn to love each other as we do, and so that they can share in our love. God's love was so contagious and so powerful that it spilled out from his very essence into us. And he did that on purpose because he wanted it to have somewhere beautiful to go. That's the power and the truth that John wants us to understand. God didn't just create love for our benefit. He is love. He defines love. It's the essence of who he is and how he acts. Now, we should bear in mind here, and this goes back to you know, what I began with a few moments ago, that the kind of love John is describing is not some you know, romantic form of affection. Uh, that would be eros in the Greek language. In this case, as elsewhere in the New Testament, John purposefully uses the Greek word agape, which means literally the love of God, the love of God. Agape is a unique kind of love. It's different than, other than whatever type of love might come naturally to us as human beings. Agape is sacrificial and selfless. Now, with all that as backdrop then, let's come back to the specifics of the resurrection, right? It's Resurrection Sunday. That's what we're here to celebrate today. So what does this idea of love and where it came from have to do with the events of Jesus' death and resurrection? Anything? Well, here's what John's driving at, and we see it in the very next verse, verse 9. John's telling us that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate way in which God showed his love among us. I'll take you back to another memorable experience from my childhood. I remember fondly uh, that my favorite experience in elementary school was show and tell, right? Anybody, I don't know if they still do, Julie, do they still do this? And <laughs> a, a few? A few of those regressive classrooms, right, um, that still believe in old-fashioned ideas. Uh, man, that was, the, that was the bomb. Show and tell was the bomb. You know, you got to pick some special item from home and bring it in and share it with your whole class and tell them why it was meaningful to you. And, uh, I, you know, I don't remember much else from elementary school. I'm sure I learned reading and writing and arithmetic, but, but I do remember show and tell. And, you know, I mean, maybe it's a humorous way to picture it all, but, but I think what John's hinting at here is that the cross and the resurrection were God's moment of show and tell. 
Like the, the whole idea of show and tell originated with him. Not, you know, not just love, but show and tell. It's God's idea. Because what John's saying is that the, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection life, of course, all included in that, show us the Father's love. They show us how great God's love for us really is. See the connection in verse 9, 1 John 4, 9. This is how God showed his love among us. Do you hear that? This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Now, another thing I love about this verse, again, and I mentioned this already, is the connection between life and love. The two are meant to be inseparable. Love is what gives meaning to life. Life without love is empty. Life without love is void. It's purposeless, and it does not lead to good things. In fact, there are lots of studies that have been done um, even over the last few years. There's a whole new field of study in which scientists are looking at the effects of the absence of love on children and how that affects their lives as they grow. You can find articles about this, fascinating insights about the difficulties that children have, not just emotionally, but even physically, if they grow up in a home where there's an absence of love. What does that tell us? Life and love go together by God's design. Life is meant to be filled with love. Love is meant to bring meaning and purpose and focus to life as we know it. That's the way God designed it to work. And so John says very clearly, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. That's the life of Christ imparted to us as an expression of God's love. So God sent Jesus among us, think about this, with the purpose of his death and resurrection in mind long before it ever took place. I mean, has this occurred to you? Have you thought about this reality? Jesus didn't die by accident. It wasn't like the Romans came up with this great idea or the Jews came up with this great idea. Hey, we got to get rid of this guy. We got to put him down. He's causing too much trouble. This is a crazy reality to think about, but the whole thing was planned by God in advance because he had a purpose in it. He sent Jesus to live and die and live again for our benefit, for our blessing, so that we can live in Christ. So we experience then the resurrection life of Christ when we come to faith in Jesus. That's how this works. That's what John's describing. And bear in mind here that John experienced this reality firsthand. He's not writing as just some, you know, some abstract theology, some deep thoughts from a guy named John. No, John was, let's remember, John was Jesus' best friend. John was Jesus' closest disciple. John refers to himself in the Gospel of John as the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
So he encountered the love of Christ. He followed Christ for three years. He watched Jesus die on the cross. In fact, Jesus spoke to John. He was the only one of the 12 disciples that was present at the time of Jesus' death. Jesus spoke to him from the cross and said, I want you to take care of my mother, Mary, because I, you know, I'm not going to be around anymore. And then John encountered the risen Christ Jesus. In fact, if you study this out, what I love about the whole story of John is uh, you can kind of see it you know, reflected not just in the gospel and in his letters, but ultimately in the book of Revelation. Right? John, John became known as the apostle of love. And he writes about love, the power of love, again and again and again. We're just looking at one little slice of what John has to say on this whole subject. And what's really cool about the way that John encountered Jesus and how the love of Jesus changed John comes to light in Revelation when the risen Lord appears to him years later when he's on the Isle of Patmos. He's been exiled. He's alone by himself. He's worshiping Jesus on the Lord's day, and he encounters Jesus. Jesus comes back and appears to him. And this time, it's not just, you know, my friend Jesus, the one that I walked with and and talked with for a couple years. This is like, you know, power Jesus, resurrected Jesus, Jesus in all of his glory, Jesus in all of his majesty, Jesus in all of his power, Jesus with burning eyes. He appears before John. And John literally falls down as if he's dead at the sight of that Jesus. Like, imagine what he's thinking in that moment. I thought I knew you. (laughs) I thought I knew you, but I didn't know this is the real you. Wow, this this is the glorified Jesus. Now, I share that with you because I want you to understand who's writing the words that we're reading and how his own life was impacted by an encounter with the love of Jesus. He's not writing some abstract philosophy here. He's telling us what changed his life. This is a firsthand testimony. John's saying, this is how God showed his love among us. He might as well be saying, this is how God showed his love to me. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. So the life then of Christ is made known to us and imparted to us because of God's love. We experience life in Christ because of God's love for us. There are shades here, perhaps you're thinking about this already, echoes of another classic verse penned by the same apostle, the same guy, John. Perhaps many of you know it by heart, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. All right, yeah, let's say it together. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I love that. That, I mean, it never gets old, does it? No matter how many times you see somebody holding a sign in the end zone, you know, with that verse on it, it never gets old because that statement captures the essence of what God has done to demonstrate his love for us. I want to share with you a little story 
written by a man named Joshua Rogers. It's his own God story about how he's experienced this reality even as a young child, and um, he's reflecting on that now as an adult. He writes, I was only five when I walked into my mother's bedroom and I told her that I wanted to give my life to Christ. We got down on our knees beside the bed, and at that moment I asked Jesus into my heart. After that, I proudly told everyone that Jesus had saved me. But my pride slowly diminished over the years. As I got older, the more I questioned the efficacy of my salvation prayer, because let's be honest, the five-year-old motives behind it didn't exactly demonstrate any depth of understanding about what I was really doing. On the one hand, my parents taught me a lot about the Bible. So by that age, I really had developed a childhood affection for the miracle-working Savior who held little kids in his lap and then died to save them. On the other hand, I wanted to be born again because I would, take, I would get to take the grape juice and the crackers during communion at our Baptist church. I remember thinking that too. Not to mention the most important reason of all, I would avoid going to hell. These reasons didn't seem like very good ones for wanting to commit my eternal life to God, so eventually I began to wonder if perhaps I hadn't actually been saved after all. My insecurity about my salvation inspired me to repeatedly redo my salvation prayer over time, but it never seemed like it was enough. I wanted something more official. I needed a prayer that would unquestionably provide my eternal connection to Jesus. But there was a vignette in the Easter story that finally provided the security that a prayer for salvation never could. As Jesus was hanging there and his life was almost over, he had a brief conversation with one of the two thieves hanging on either side of him. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that this thief had actually been mocking Jesus earlier in his crucifixion. But Luke tells us the rest of the story. With the clock ticking down on his life, the thief had a sudden change of heart and made a simple request. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man was a lowlife. He was a common criminal attempting a desperate deathbed conversion. And all he could utter was a request that wasn't exactly profound. Remember me. Jesus didn't do an inventory of the man's good or bad deeds before he responded. He didn't ignore him or wait until the man said the perfect words. Remember me was enough. In the final moments of their lives, Jesus responded, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So, maybe you won't go to church this Easter. Obviously, that doesn't apply to all of you. Maybe you don't even want to. Maybe you're a believer who's insecure about your own salvation. Maybe the idea of praying about something as monumental as your eternal salvation seems intimidating to you. You wouldn't even know where to start. We'll start here with the two words, remember me. If it's good for the thief on the cross, this is his point, then it's good for any of us and all of us. And why would Jesus remember any of us under those circumstances? Because that's why he went through those circumstances. 
That's why he died in the first place. For us. For our salvation. Because of his great love for each and every one of us. So let me bring this around then to one last insight because our time is winding down. I want you to recognize now the outflow. We've been talking about what Jesus has done for us, what God has done for us in Jesus, the love of God expressed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But where this passage takes us next is is a bit more challenging in some respects. I think it, it might seem easy enough at the, at the first to receive the love that I've been describing, just to receive it, just to let God touch your life with it. Let it become a part of your experience, a part of your reality. Let his love begin to define your life. But then here's, here's where it gets tricky, and not, not in a bad way. This is... This is powerful, but, but it's challenging. What I want you to see in John's words to us this morning has to do with what we do after we've received the love of Christ. Really, it amounts to this. To receive God's love for us and his life in us means that we're to commit ourselves to showing and sharing that love with others. In other words, this, just, this isn't just for your own benefit. This isn't just for you and, and, and the benefit and blessing of your own relationship with Jesus. Jesus' love was not given to you and displayed for you on the cross, poured out for you in the shedding of his blood just for your own benefit. It was for your benefit, no doubt about it. But there's meant to be an outflow. There's meant to be an expression of that reality that comes from your life when your life has been changed by the love of Christ. What John's saying is that to receive God's love for us and his life in us is to commit ourselves to showing and sharing that love with others. It's got to flow out. Look with me, for example, and he, he, he talks about this quite a bit more than I have time to cover, but just for example, look with me at verses 11 and 12. 1 John 4, 11 and 12. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. There it is. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. So with these words, we come at last then to the intended result of God's love for us. It's to touch our lives and to change our lives so that we can express that love to others, just as God did for us. It's not just for us to receive we're meant to receive it so that we can then turn around and demonstrate it to others as Jesus did for us. John hinted at this all the way back in verse 8 at the very beginning of this passage, but here he's driving the point home in verses 11 and 12, and he comes back to it again in the following verses. He's saying it's through our love for one another 
that God's life in us gets expressed. And his love for us is made complete. Think about that. God's love for you, that's an amazing statement. God's love for you is made complete when you express it to others. That's the point here that John wants us to grab hold of and live into. God's love for us is made complete only when we express it to others. That means that sharing the love of Christ with others is central to our life in Christ. It's not like an elective. It's not an add-on. It's not something you can kind of choose to do if you want to or if it sounds appealing in any moment. I love what Sophie shared earlier about how, how she feels this contagious sense of desire to talk about Jesus when she, when she encounters a stranger. That's beautiful. That's the love of Christ at work right there. That's an example of what John's describing. We ought to find... We ought to find that the name of Jesus rolls off our tongues easily with no fear, right? Because perfect love casts out fear. So if you find yourself struggling to speak about Jesus and to share his love with other people, his love in you and for you has not yet been perfected. Time to go, go, go to work. Time to go back to the Lord and Invite him to, you know, kind of go, go a little deeper with you. Let me just close this morning with, with an example. My dad shared this with me yesterday, and I thought it was beautiful. And uh, at the risk of, um, well, actually, they already drew attention to themselves, so I guess it doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's this great um, edition of the state news which is the Michigan State newspaper uh, that came out uh, just a week or so ago. And really, the, uh, the issue is devoted to uh, the survivors of the Larry Nassar scandal, which obviously is an incredibly painful experience, both for every individual that went through it and for the university as a whole. It's been devastating to the Michigan State community. But what I, uh, what I find fascinating about this, edition, this edition of the State News, and it was issued you know, just a week or so ago, is the full, the full page advertisement on the back page, which was signed by several dozen faculty members, including our own Chris and Ashley Aline and Kent Miller. Here's what it says. <clears throat> Thank you, by the way. Thank you. At least 513 eyewitnesses, convincing documentation, at last and most compelling, and last and most compelling, an empty tomb. Makes you want to know more, much more. More than bunnies and colored eggs, Easter celebrates the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. We believe Christ died for our sins and rose again. He conquered death and offers us forgiveness, peace with God, and eternal life. We've come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus is well-documented historically and provides strong reasons for each of us to consider the truth of his claims for us. Look at the evidence that has convinced people for centuries that Jesus is who he says he is and ask any of us for 
an article entitled The Resurrection, Hopes for History. Let me tell you, every person who put their name on the line and allowed it to be published as a part of that advertisement is saying, my experience of God's love has changed my life, and I want it to change yours too. That's beautiful. That's powerful. That's what I'm talking about, right? Now, it doesn't have to be an ad in the newspaper. There are a million different ways that you can find to demonstrate the love of God to a world in need. But find one at least, right? Find something that you can do or say that expresses the love of God for others so that the love of God in you can be made complete. That's what this morning is all about, friends. We could talk a lot about um, the historical evidence for the resurrection. Some of you have studied that, and there are lots of great resources about that. But really, to me, the heart behind it all is what makes the history compelling, life-changing. The heart behind it all is the heart of God, the love of God. If it weren't for the love of God, Jesus would have never been raised from the dead. But God raised him up because of his love for you and me. Because he wanted that love to touch and to change our lives. And then through us, to touch and change the lives of others. Think of it like the domino effect, right? Each one of us has a part to play. Each one of us has something to share. Each one of us has been tasked with the challenge of sharing God's love with others. I hope this week that you'll find some practical way that you can do that to demonstrate the love of Christ to people around us who need to see it in order to believe it. I want to close with uh, one more video this morning, and it's a powerful uh, portrayal through art of the entire story of humanity, culminating with the death and resurrection of Christ and what it means for us. It's a great summary of what I've just shared with you, and I hope you'll enjoy this, and then we'll, we'll transition into some prayer ministry to close our time and some more worship to close our time this morning. Enjoy this. It began with darkness. Pitch black. Formless and empty. Into this darkness, God created light. Created entire galaxies, countless wonders beyond imagination. And to behold his glory, he breathed life into his children. He loved them with a passion burning brighter than the sun. And for a time, he made his dwelling with them in a beautiful, perfect world. But then, this love was torn apart, fractured by a crushing abyss so wide that it could never be crossed. An immense chasm created by our sin, our pride, 
our disobedience. And so the darkness returned, and with it came death, wars, plagues, and exile. But our father refused to leave his children in the darkness. So once again, he sent his light to dwell on earth, to become Emmanuel, God with us, to teach us, to heal us, and save us from the terrible wages of sin. But where he preached peace, he was met with hostility. Where he preached love, hatred burned against him. Where he preached forgiveness, his enemies cried out for execution. He was arrested, tortured, and sentenced to death as a criminal. With nails in his hands, Jesus bore the unfathomable weight of our sin and cleansed us from all unrighteousness. They assigned him a grave with the wicked and sealed his tomb with a stone. Darkness reigned over the land once more as hope seemed to vanish. But on the third day, his light pierced the shadows. His power shook the earth. The Son of God rose, declaring victory over death and throwing wide the gates of heaven. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. His love still calls to us. His grace still covers us. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Christ.